Welcome to Stanford University Women in Data Science podcast. We interview women from across the field to hear their perspectives on the past, the present, and the future of data science. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Women in Data Science podcast. I'm your host, Margot Gerritsen. I'm a big fan of the MIT Technology Review. And yes, I say that without reservation, even though I'm at Stanford. In the last year, I started reading more and more articles in the review by Karen Howe. I think she's a great journalist. And she's now a senior editor at the review as well. She covers research in artificial intelligence, as well as social impacts of AI. She also writes a weekly newsletter called The Algorithm. Karen trained as a mechanical engineer, not as a journalist, and came to journalism after working for some time in tech herself in San Francisco. I'm really happy to have Karen in the studio with me today. We'll talk about her interesting transition into journalism, her dreams and aspirations, the topic of ethics washing in the tech industry, and the groundbreaking story on Facebook, how Facebook got addicted to spreading misinformation, that was published last month. So nice to have you here with us in the studio, Karen. Welcome to the WITS podcast. I subscribed to MIT Technology Review some time ago, and, and I read it every time they sent me a little newsletter with articles. And uh, I looked into your background because I thought your writing was really, really fantastic. And then I realized that you have a STEM background as well. And it's a bit unusual for people in STEM to go into this kind of storytelling at this high level. So I'm very curious to hear how this all started. Were you always a ferocious writer? No, not at all. From a very early age, I always wanted to be a writer, but I did not execute. <laughs> My parents had this running joke as a kid where I would always say like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. And my mom would be like, but you haven't written anything. <laughs> I wasn't part of my school newspaper. I studied mechanical engineering. I didn't actually study like a, a writing intensive degree in college. But for me, I think I was always just fascinated by stories and the power that stories had. Particularly, you know, as a young kid, when you're reading fiction stories, I thought it was kind of magic that someone had a thought and they put it down on paper and then I was able to now have the same thought that they did or or imagine the same world that they imagined and to be honest um, this is kind of like a funny embarrassing fact I had no there were no adults in my life that actually were in the journalism profession so I didn't actually realize that journalism was a profession that I could enter until very late in college, actually, when I took a policy class and the professor was talking about just how does policymaking work and like who are the actors within the policymaking world. And she brought up journalists as like an actor who helps educate the public and then the rallies the public around an issue and then sort of gets policymakers enough public support to push change at the policy level. And that was the first time that I thought, wow, that's that marries like both the power of storytelling with social change. And that was what I was always interested in from a technology perspective. I thought technology was also a very powerful way to create social change and make the world a better place. And so 
after I studied mechanical engineering, I actually thought that I would have a very standard tech career. And I went and worked at a software startup in Silicon Valley and tried that path for, you know, that using technology as, as the implement for social change. And what I got very quickly frustrated by was the fact that I felt like Silicon Valley incentives were not conducive to actually developing technologies that were effective for social change. I was working at this company that had a really great mission, but it was it was focused on a very long-term mission on trying to tackle some of the root issues around climate change and resource consumption. And that was not a profitable issue and the company quickly devolved. And so when that happened, I didn't really see myself actually staying and looking for another mission-driven company and then and, and then experiencing that again. So that's when I thought, okay, well, I also believe in the power of stories for advancing social change. So why don't I try that path? You know, what was that learning curve like where you switched over? And, and I'm asking because a lot of people always say, oh, once you, uh, and this is particularly for the students who are listening in, once you choose a, a major that sort of sets you up for life and they find it very scary to change and dive into something completely different, which you did. It is very scary. I think I I was sort of lucky in that I was very indecisive in college. So I actually switched majors once in college and that was sort of a micro version of this career change. I went in thinking that I wanted to study civil engineering. So that's what I declared. And then like the process of switching to mechanical engineering, which sounds very minor <laughs> to people who are not <laughs> in STEM, but it was like a really scary process. How am I going to actually do this? Will I actually complete my requirements by switching? You know, like, will I be late or delayed compared to my peers, all of these things. And so after college, when I was like thinking about switching careers, it almost felt similar in that I was like, well, I did this once before where I thought I would do one thing and then went through the processes of figuring out that I wanted to do another. So my learning curve, I mean, it was huge. I didn't know how journalism worked. Like fundamentally, I just didn't understand how the profession worked. I was based in San Francisco at the time. And there are two journalism schools in the area that are quite good, one at Berkeley, one at Stanford. So I ended up actually reaching out to a bunch of grad students at the journalism program and just asking if I could sit in on their classes and, and ask them really basic questions about how journalism works as a profession. From there, I contacted the very few handful of MIT alums that ended up in journalism. There have been maybe like 40 in the past 60 years. <laughs> I emailed every single one of them and um, got on the call with about 15 to 20 of them and just asked them how things worked and then applied to internships, applied to fellowships, eventually got enough of a foundation from the internships and fellowships that I was able to land a full-time job. And it the entire process took two and a half years from the moment of realization that I wanted to switch my career to actually landing a full-time position. Yeah, that's not, that's actually quite short, I would think, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> bravo. I mean, that, it's always interesting to see people being so determined to, to change and do this. And, and uh, it sounds like you found a really good way to get into uh, this pretty quickly. One, there's so many interesting things that you just mentioned that I could hook into. <laughs> but one, one of the things uh, that, that's interesting about your 
change also is that you were part of Silicon Valley. And as you said, in an industry with what you considered the wrong incentives. And you've really also in journalism focused on the impact and the role of Silicon Valley in society. So many of your your articles are about this, are about mm-hmm. responsibility that companies have when they invoke or, or start change, are about how good or, or bad companies are dealing with that responsibility. And very often I find your articles enlightening because it opens up a different look at technology and particularly artificial intelligence that as an insider, you may not have seen before. And so not only did you jump into journalism, but you also went from being an insider in in Silicon Valley to being an outsider reflecting on it and looking in. How, How was that change? I think the reason why I write about the things that I do is partly tied to just like what I care about as a person, but I think it also is very much tied to the experience that I had in Silicon Valley, my very, very short experience. And having graduated from MIT, I think when I was at MIT and when I was in San Francisco, I was very acutely aware that my peers are incredibly smart and many of them are incredibly well-intentioned and many of them are incredibly passionate about wanting to use technology for social change. So like the reason why I originally wanted to come to MIT and study technology and then work in the field of technology. And yet, one of the things that I started growing frustrated by, even in undergrad, was the fact that it felt like there was no place to really channel that energy. When I finally found you know, a startup that I thought was mission-driven and that I really cared about, had a purpose that I could get behind, and I got to San Francisco, realized that this kind of company didn't really thrive in that kind of environment. There was this disconnect of, okay, I am surrounded by these really smart people that care a lot about the world and are passionate about change. And yet there seems to be like no pathway because of incentives for doing that. I think one of the reasons why I then started writing about some of the ways that Silicon Valley produces unintended consequences is because I already got a taste of the misalignment from the inside that was causing this issue. But then once I transitioned into journalism, I then realized I had like a second realization, which is I was starting to connect with a lot more people that are socially minded, but also like plugged more into the political discussions and the social discussions that are happening in society. And I realized that I was really ignorant about these things because I had spent the last five years just being around tech people who honestly don't spend a lot of time talking about these issues. My second realization now is that I was extremely socially minded, was already sifting, was already trying to find like a company that was mission driven. And I wasn't even aware of a lot of the ways that technology is harming society. And so it kind of, those two like realizations combined for me into a mission statement for what I want to do with my journalism is really raise awareness for not just like the public, but also for the technologists themselves that are building these technologies and have a lot of empathy for these technologists as well. Like I'm I'm not trying to say like, oh, these technologists are just evil, horrible people. No, like many of them are my closest friends who went through very similar processes, processes and frustrations 
but ultimately chose a different path of staying within Silicon Valley rather than me exiting Silicon Valley. And so I think that's sort of like where I come from. My my positionality when I'm writing is like trying to negotiate between all of the things that I realized and experienced within that world and then as I was exiting that world. It, it resonates a lot with me what you're saying. As an academic, I'm sometimes inside this technology world and sometimes on the outside looking in and looking at things in a, in a slightly higher perspective. And I've been through similar transitions in my life is that there is often in Silicon Valley for sure, and, and I've seen this also in other bubbles like that around the world, this conviction that technology is often the answer to any problem we have. And, and of course, often technology helps. But I think that when you are so convinced of that, when you're in inside a technology company and you're thinking this is going to help change the world, you're often blind to what unintended consequences there may be. And very often then it's so driven and, and people are so keen on reaching the point where this technology can be applied that they don't take the time to look further than their own narrow focus. Have you, yeah, you talked a little bit about how your view on technology has changed over time. And, and one of the things you mentioned was this, you know, the more negative aspect of technology developments. Are there things that you know now you didn't know before that give you more hope or to make you feel more optimistic about the future? One of the things that I've sort of realized on the positive side in writing about technology is I get really inspired by the people who had similar frustrations to me, but instead of exiting, some people stuck it out and it's incredibly inspiring to me to see them then carve out new pathways for themselves and the people that then follow to actually create technology that has like really positive social impact. One example, I, I'm currently working on this story right now that is trying to examine how the AI research world has shifted over the last five years because it's changed a lot. The like the mainstream conversations that researchers have and what they think they're actually there to do has shifted a lot. It used to be much more technical, much more theoretical, and now it's increasingly becoming more grounded, more nuanced, more focused on how do we actually take responsibility for like the societal implications of our technologies and make sure it's more beneficial. Part of that that evolution was very much driven by people on the inside who stuck it out and like really advocated for raised awareness on these issues and advocated for this change and changed incentive structures like creating new conferences that actually incentivize people to write papers about this the AI ethics instead of just like a new AI technique or like created new groups or new communities where it, it was gathering researchers who are thinking about these issues so that they can collaborate more easily on projects or on papers that really critique some of the mainstream work in the field and present alternative modes of research or or alternative technologies that could be developed. And so that has been really inspiring to me. I don't think I've ever seen like a positive unintentional consequence. Like all of the positive change that I see is always extremely intentional and extremely hard. It's really heartening to see like how many people are willing to put in that work and how that movement has grown over time. 
The WITS podcast is produced by the WITS worldwide team at Stanford in Stanford Data Science and the Stanford Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering. This podcast is made possible thanks to our sponsors, Facebook, Intuit, Walmart Global Tech, and Wells Fargo. You mentioned just now ethics, and and I do really want to talk about this because I know it's one of the areas that you're very passionate about. And ethics has become uh, a bit of a buzzword, you know, so if, if you do a simple search on ethics or equity or bias, the number of uh, times you get a return now is very much higher than, say, 10 years ago. Do you think that in technology companies, there is really an, a concerted effort to understand ethical aspects of their work and uh, prevent or repair negative consequences of the work that they've done? The short answer is no, but I think it's, it's actually much more complicated than that. Sometimes we talk about companies as though they're like one unified entity, but really it's like a collection of individuals and that, that could share very, very different goals. And I think if you talk at the individual level, there are definitely people at the big tech companies that care very deeply and are very serious about trying to interrogate the issues of the technology that their company is building and figure out ways to make it better. I am very intrigued by the way that incentives kind of shape the work that is ends up being done at like a systemic level. And I think the incentives at companies and the incentives that companies face will cause the like holistic system to sort of fail at doing real ethics work. Like the most high uh, profile case example of this is is the Google situation where there was this ethical AI team at Google that was doing some really great work trying to critique some of the practices that Google had. What we saw when that in the fallout that happened around that ethical AI team was these researchers did the serious work. They tried to get the paper published. Google refused to get to let them publish it and sort of like censored their research. And then both leads of the team got fired. And then it later came out that this was actually just one instance of academic censorship, but Google had actually like told many of the other researchers of the company, please strike a positive tone when talking about like the technology that's being developed by Google. Within the company, employees are sort of heavily disincentivized to do this serious work because they could be at threat of being fired. And for the company itself, the company is heavily incentivized to sort of do this kind of ethics washing because they have a profit motive, they have they want to look good in the eyes of the public. And so they're carrying out these actions that ultimately create some of the misaligned incentives within the company. Every tech giant that I've sort of looked into they sort of suffer these similar issues at the systemic level where there are people who deeply care about it within the organization, but it doesn't necessarily elevate to a company being willing to fundamentally change the way their profitable technologies work. And so until we actually see a company actually being willing to, to like fundamentally overhaul their business model or fundamentally overhaul like the core technologies that underpin their profit, I don't think I would go so far to say that like any company has a concerted ethics effort. 
Yeah, there's a lot of people that are very worried about that too, as the power of these companies grows, right? There, there are some unbelievably large and impactful companies, some powerful companies that, as you're saying, don't really have the incentives to criticize their own their own work. In the, in the panel at the Women in Data Science conference that we just had, you know, several of my panelist guests uh, said the only way out of this and the only way forward is through regulation. Now you're approaching it from a different side. You you publish and you raise awareness. And you recently had an article related to Facebook that has mm-hmm. led to some some really good publicity also in political circuits. And so it was recently cited, I think, also in some of the hearings. So you told earlier that, that that is one of the things you'd like to do. You'd like to have this impact and raise public awareness, but also really awareness with policymakers and regulators. Tell us about that that article with Facebook. For, for those of you who haven't read it, I highly recommend. It's very easy to find it by simply Googling Facebook Karen Howe. <laughs> you, will, you will find it really quickly. <laughs> Do you think that this article is really making an impact now. I know, I know it's hard to predict that because you could just be the first uh, little shift, you know, that, that could start a, an, an avalanche later on. But how, mm-hmm. you know, you started your writing career very idealistic, saying, look, I want to be socially relevant and I want to raise awareness. And now you've published this article that is raising awareness. Are you still as optimistic about the role or... Or how, how do you look at this? Or as some of my students said, when we discussed your article, said, well, this is all nice, but two months from now, they will have all have forgotten about it and Facebook will just continue to do their work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll start with the first question, which is just what the piece is about. And the very high level summary is I, I did a nine month investigation into Facebook's Responsible AI team, which is a team that has existed in some form for three, for the last three years started shortly after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And the purpose of the team is to understand and mitigate the unintended consequences of Facebook's algorithms. And what I found in my nine months was that the team has sort of been pigeonholed into specifically focusing on certain unintended consequences that are good for Facebook's growth to resolve, aka AI bias. And it has completely ignored other harms that you would think that are the most important harms of of Facebook's algorithms, specifically because addressing them would undermine Facebook's growth and that um, those problems are misinformation, amplification, polarization, exacerbation, and some of the other things that um, people have really critiqued Facebook about, especially in the wake of the January 6th Capitol riots. This kind of lines up with the rest of the culture of the company. And there there are other stories that I include in my piece that show that there have been times when Facebook was not only ignoring or negligent of the issues that its algorithms might be causing, but also purposely undermining some of the efforts to try and fix it because of this tension with the company's growth. It's definitely been the piece that I've written that has gotten the most attention not from like a pure number of readers perspective, but from the right readers <laughs> in that I was really hoping to have this article speak to three different 
groups of people. The first one being policymakers, because there is a lot of discussion now that we are in a new administration for do we actually now finally have the political will to do something to regulate these companies and specifically to regulate Facebook. The second target audience, people who work within like the responsible AI community, um, because there's sort of been like a very long discussion within this community about like, can we actually do good work within corporate environments? Can we affect change from the inside versus the outside? And I kind of wanted to give this as a case study to them. This is what happens when a team tries to affect change from the inside. And this is how it slowly kind of devolved into not really touching the core issues at all. And then the third one being the public and the fourth one being the people who work at Facebook. And one of the interesting things that I've sort of been heartened by, I mean, first of all, I was really happy that policymakers actually cited my, my work at the congressional hearing, because that was sort of validation to me that that target audience is paying attention. And that's important. But the on the flip side, like the this fourth category, people that work at Facebook, after my piece published, I've been sort of keeping tabs on what the internal conversation has generated at Facebook. And, and one of the things that I've sort of realized is Facebook has a pretty high turnover rate for a lot of these things. There are a lot of new employees that come in and um, don't really know the company history. And when pieces like this publish, they sort of are like awakened to some of the issues. With every generation of Facebook employees, there's like people who they like become educated about these issues and then they start pushing for change internally. And I think just like continuing to publish this like steady stream of papers that hold these companies accountable is important in that regard and that you need to continue educating these employees that are at the companies to try and do as much work as they can to hold these companies accountable while the policymakers are also trying to figure out how to hold these companies accountable. You need pressure on both sides. In terms of like what I think the actual impact like the concrete impact will be other than people reading it and knowing about it and trying to push for change. I have absolutely no idea. I think I'm definitely similarly cynical to your students in that I do think that if, if like I didn't, if someone didn't write any follow-ups or whatever in two months, of course, the conversation is probably going to die rather optimistically. I, I think that like my piece sort of published at the confluence of a lot of momentum in that like the policy world does have quite a lot of momentum to address these issues right now. And I think there are like other stakeholders in this conversation that have a lot of momentum to address this right now. It was completely accidental, but the timing of my piece after the Capitol riots, I think like really hit home some of the concerns that people had um, across the spectrum within Facebook, outside of Facebook, at the policymaking level. I'm hoping that it at least catalyzes more people to cover these issues and and continue intensifying the pressure to actually affect change. Um, that's sort of like the impact that I can hope for is that it's it's a it's a catalyst, but it is certainly not like a nail in the coffin on some of these issues. No, we need many more Karen House, I think, also to make that <laughs> to make that work. I thought again, I thought it was an excellent piece and. No, there's certainly optimism amongst the group that I'm in, you know, who thinks about these issues a lot with the new administration. And a lot of people, of course, look to Europe and say, hey, we're so far behind. Europe is pushing through regulation much faster than we are. 
and maybe they mm-hmm. can lead lead now. And I'm going to be very curious to see what will happen. I said earlier, and I really mean, is that I think it's courageous to write articles like this because, you know, as as many people know, when you voice opinions or you're doing, you're writing things in criticism of large, powerful companies, uh, you will you will hear pushback, and sometimes that pushback cannot be so nice. And so when I when I asked uh, my research group, you know, what sort of st- questions would you ask Karen on an interview? One of them said, "Well, ask her about her level of discomfort with trolls and others of negative feedback <laughs> that you get as a result of these of these articles, or you know, not super friendly discussions, say with with an employee at, for example, Facebook who has a big following, and then." his followers attack you. I think you know who I'm talking about. So what is, how do you deal with that? How did you overcome this or was it never really a problem for you? I think I'm really lucky in that I haven't experienced some of the harassment that like a lot of other female journalists have experienced. And interestingly, this was happening during a time when some of the tech really great women who are tech reporters that I really admire were actually being targeted and harassed in much more deeply disturbing ways, like Tucker Carlson putting the photo of like a woman who's a tech reporter at the New York Times and and, and essentially mobilizing his millions of viewers to attack her. Seeing that while I was experiencing, honestly, a much more minor thing just gave me a lot of perspective. It helped some of this rub roll off my shoulders because I was like, I know confidently that I told the truth and that this truth was important for the public to hear. So like a few dozen comments here or there that are attacking me or attacking my character, attacking my journalism, whatever it is, like that's a small price to pay, especially given that there's there could be much, much worse. There were definitely moments when this particular employee that we're talking about when like seeing his comments in particular did really hurt me. And I felt very sad that someone that I honestly like respect a lot because he is a big person in the field and has done, has made a lot of important contributions in the field. It was just sad for for me to see someone that I had admired personally attack me in such a petty way. But Other than that, to to be honest, like I just like spent time decompressing, meditating, like spending time with my family and not try to overthink some of this feedback Mm. that I was getting because a lot of it is just noise. Like I, I, when there's like critical feedback that is actually nuanced and important, I think it's super important for me to listen to. But when it's kind of just like personal attacks and petty things, it's just noise and it'll pass and I don't really spend much time heeding it. Yeah, I think that's an outstanding way to look at it. It's not always easy. I know also from personal experience, I had a podcast show maybe now 12 years ago on energy issues. And at some point, uh, because I was advocating a lot for renewable energy I got some trolls on my case and and that got a little out of control and it did make me think twice you know about continuing it's it, there's a, a vulnerability that comes with it that is not always easy to deal with and I always really admire people that that just go on mm-hmm. and you know this I admire you for that also this is a question that has come up to me 
you know, your your stories over time have become, you know, better and better, I'd say. You know, that you tackle bigger bigger problems, your research methods probably improve all the time, right? And your writing mm-hmm. improves. What would be the story that would be like the crown in your career? Is there a story like that that you're thinking about? <laughs> like, oh, if I could only write a story like this. And and then my question is, can we all help you with that? How how can we make that happen? <laughs> I mean, this is sort of cliche, but there's like there's like canonical examples within journalism that everyone aspires to. Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, her book, that for me, that was one of the things that inspired me to go into journalism in the first place. This idea that like a book could spark such a widespread movement that would form the creation of the EPA and, you know, be the source of so many environmental policies that still exist today. Like, I don't know what that story looks like for me, it's inconceivable to me that I would write a story that would have that much change, but that's sort of like the level of change that I would really hope to strive for is like some version of a silent spring that really transforms both the cultural discussions around a particular issue as well as the policy, yeah, the policy landscape. You could write something like silent bites or some, some <laughs> similar thing. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll have the luck of actually writing something that powerful. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you so much again, Karen, for coming on. I look forward to your next articles and wish you all the best with everything. And it was wonderful to hear a bit more about your background and how you got into this, the writing these, these articles from the outside, looking in to Silicon Valley and highlighting all these very important topics that we all worry about and think about and care about. Uh, So thank you very much for that. Thank you so much, Margot, for having me. I'm your host, Margot Gerritsen, and that concludes this episode of the Women in Data Science podcast. To find out more about this podcast or other women in data science initiatives at Stanford, visit our website at witsconference.org. That is W-I-D-S conference, one word, dot org. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Bye for now.